This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Dr. Artyom Tonian. He's a sociologist and researcher from Armenia and he's going to be telling us about the current clashes, the conflict that has broken out between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, Less than a week ago, Azerbaijan launched an assault on the contested region of Nagorno-Karabakh, also known as Artsakh. It's a region that has been fought over for decades now. Um, So Artyom is going to explain to us what is happening. He's going to go into some of the history and tell us why this conflict is so dangerous right now. Please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. This, uh, this conflict has been going on now for, what, nearly a week. Um, I was wondering if you can just kind of take us back to, uh, you know, how this started. Obviously, Azerbaijan launched the offensive at about 8 in the morning. Maybe you can just explain that for us, what happened. We have to go, I, I, I guess, maybe a couple of days back uh, when we started seeing uh, the Azeri ratchet up rhetoric um, Armenia being engaged in subversive activities, positioning troops for a war of aggression, and so on and so forth. So basically, Aliyev was preparing the ground uh, for for an assault. And this has been sort of a pattern from his administration, wherever he has accused, whenever he has accused Armenia of preparing to do something, a couple of days later, it usually... The opposite has happened, and Azerbaijan has attacked or uh, shelled or any number of similar stuff. So a couple of days uh, on on September, I mean, yeah, on September twenty-five, uh, Aliyev started speaking again on Azer on Armenia getting ready to attack, and he was applying and appealing to international actors to rein in Armenia so on and so forth and on the, uh, the on september 27 we started seeing i started seeing on telegram channels on twitter and on facebook that at six o'clock in the morning armenians had shelled a border village along the line of contract contact in the gorno karabakh and <clears throat> which for all intents and purposes, was not true, but there were some images that emerged, probably images either from earlier or perhaps even, uh, I wouldn't want to say faked, but there were some images of questionable mm. uh, uh, origins. Uh, and within an hour, at 7.10 a.m. local time, Azerbaijan started uh, uh, attacking uh, with heavy artillery fire at first, as wars of this type are usually started, uh, preparing for a ground invasion, essentially. Uh, the artillery was targeting the Armenian altern- uh, artillery positions, and the front lines. And so, <clears throat> it started from there, and our uh, Armenians incurred, as is expected, uh, casualties, uh, heavy casualties probably. We are still not sure about the numbers of the dead on the first day, uh, even today. 
uh, according to the official number, it's about 156 or 160 uh, official uh, deaths from the Armenian side. Yeah, but so that's how it essentially started. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and maybe you can just go into a brief background of the region, Nagorno-Karabakh. We did do an episode all about the place, but if you can briefly kind of sum up why this is contested land between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The, the region is complex as it gets, right? And so there are clashing histories, and more important, there are clashing historiographies. So, you know, for Armenians, Nagorno-Karabakh is known as Artsakh, as a historic Armenian province that has been part of the uh, Armenian ethno-religious presence in the region since time immemorial. You know, the Armenian historiography contends with some grounds backed up by non-Armenian historians, that Armenia has had a long presence in the region. But demographically, the region undergoes several important changes because of waves and waves of invasions. Uh, but by 12th, 13th century, the, demograph the demographics of the region have changed <clears throat> considerably and not in favor of the Armenians uh, due to the uh, uh, demise of the Albanians who lived in some of the territories in in uh, Karabakh, not just Nagorno-Karabakh, but the lowlands, but also uh, the expansion of uh, Tatar-Mongol invasions, the expansion of uh, the uh, Persians uh, upwards, uh, and so the region undergoes tremendous demographic changes where Armenians Armenian numbers start dwindling and dwindling. But Nagorno-Karabakh itself, according to the available, best available historic data that has been compiled, studied, restudied, and so on and so forth, the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, for all intents and purposes, have kept a certain degree of majority, demographic majority. So the Armenian pre presence in Nagorno-Karabakh has had... Uh, a rather robust continuity over the years and over the centuries. Now, the Karabakh, when we say Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, we mean the mountainous Karabakh, which also means that there are there is part to Karabakh that is not mountainous, which is the lowlands uh, to the east of Nagorno-Karabakh proper. That's where Armenians have had uh, sort of historically demographic low numbers and by the 18th century, the Armenians of uh, the Karabakh lowlands, for in all intents and purposes, had either moved to mountainous Karabakh or elsewhere, places like to Persia or to Yerevan, Khanait, Khanet, or, or elsewhere, or even assimilated some. So that's sort of the pre-Soviet era. Mm. <clears throat> and then... Having maintained that demographic robust continuity, when the region becomes uh, part of the Soviet Union in 1920s, uh, that majority had still been maintained. But uh, politically, they had been uh, basically divested of any political power. Uh, having had some uh, degree of uh, sort of sovereignty, uh, the five Armenian uh, Melik domes, as they are known, 
<clears throat> had maintained some degree of sovereignty, playing to different imperial powers to maintain this sovereignty, and so on and so forth. For all intents and purposes under the Soviet Union, all of that was gone. And so, uh, but not, nevertheless, at the uh, time of Nagorno-Karabakh's incorporation into the Soviet domain, uh, demographically, Armenians were around 85% uh, of the population in Nagorno-Karabakh, according to the census that was conducted right before the Soviet establishment. And right after the Soviet establishment, there was another census, I believe in 1926, where Armenians were about, I do not exactly remember the numbers, but they were about between 80 and 85%. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> But over the years, uh, the demographic policies of Soviet Azerbaijan and Soviet Armenia uh, uh, made sure, especially the demographic policies in Soviet Azerbaijan, made sure that the population in the region was uh, slowly but surely uh, bleeding out, the Armenian majority. Mm -hmm. So that by the time of the breakout of the 1988 hostilities, the Armenians had uh, dwindled further 10 or 15 percent, I do not remember. So there were about 75 percent of the population in 1988. So a net loss of about 10 or 12 percent or thereabouts. Um, I do not have the numbers in front of me right now to give you a precise answer. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Um, so then the war happened, right? It ended in 1994, 96. Uh, how did that begin? Well, that war began <clears throat> very inauspiciously, if I can say that. I was a kid uh, at the time, 12 or 13 years old, and I remember how the movement began. In the beginning, there were, you know, when uh, Gorbachev came to power, he started essentially talking about perestroika and glasnost, the restructurization of the economic policies of the country or the economic system, and also a degree of freedom of speech. So there were lots of grievances. If anybody knows anything about the Soviet history, uh, there were lots of canned worms in the, right. in the Soviet Union. And so when Gorbachev said, well, there are taboo subjects that are no longer taboo, Armenians uh, in Armenia there were several things that preoccupied. Uh, one of the things was the environment. The Armenian, <coughs> the Soviet Armenian Republic was undergoing a tremendous environmental stress. Uh, uh, the, uh, so there was a nascent Armenian green movement that was uh, demonstrating or lobbying against the closure of a couple of uh, important factories and the uh, nuclear power station. Uh, one of the factories was in Kirovakan, which is now known as Vanazor, the chemical factory there. The second factory was Nairit, uh, a rubber-making plant in almost downtown Yerevan. Not quite downtown, but not far either. And uh, the uh, so uh, the environment was in 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 tremendously bad shape. And of course, the nuclear power station, which people were afraid was spreading radiation and were giving people cancer and so on and so forth. Uh, 
So these issues sort of began to emerge and demonstrations were held. They were initially small, uh, but they were persistent nonetheless. And then the second uh, important taboo subject in Armenia at the time was the fate of the Karabakh Armenians. And why the fate of the Karabakh Armenians? Because there were several important Armenian uh, nationalist intellectuals with origins in Nagorno-Karabakh who had begun lobbying in Armenia proper and uh, to the Soviet authorities on number of issues that was perceived as discriminatory and having its origins in Baku, meaning to put a lead on Armenian cultural life or culture revival uh, or along those lines stuff in Nagorno-Karabakh. So there were several issues. Uh, one of the biggest issues was that <coughs> Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh were a majority, but they had no access to Armenian language television. As you know, as I know, in, uh, in a setting, in a law information setting that was Nagorno-Karabakh and the former Soviet Union, there were only very few uh, avenues of information, right? And the TV was probably the most important uh, newspapers being second in rank. So there were Armenian language newspapers, prints, printed, books were being printed, but television was a no-no. So <clears throat> Armenians, for instance, in Nagorno-Karabakh wouldn't be able to watch, let's say, the Armenian uh, Yerevan soccer or football team Ararat on their TV. And so <clears throat> that was one thing also, or Armenian movies or Armenian uh theater productions that were beamed on TV and so on and so forth. So there was another grievance that existed. Also the uh, decreasing number of Armenian schools, Armenian cultural organizations and so on and so forth. So this created uh, a, a, a sort of a, a coalescence of cultural grievances, if you, if you will. And, and the other fact was that Armenians had no functioning church in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, all the, you know, in the Soviet Union, atheism was the driving sort of uh, uh, ideological superstructure on, uh, uh, under the under communism. So uh, religion was suppressed throughout the Soviet Union, but that religious suppression felt especially acute in a place like Nagorno-Karabakh. So in order for, um, for Armenians, for instance, to baptize their children, they either had to bring priests from Armenia proper or travel to Armenia proper to have their kids baptized or maybe perhaps travel to uh, uh, Kirovabad, or, which is now Gyanja, or to Baku to have Armenian uh, uh, functional religious figures baptize their children or do religious ceremonies for weddings. So there were lots of these cultural grievances that were brought to the fort of, uh, brought to the attention of the Armenians in Armenia. And <clears throat> sort of these cultural grievances grew into a political platform where Armenian nationalists and uh, latched onto 
and the uh, Karabakh committee was formed and they started a movement demanding redress of this of these grievances and so this happened around 1987 1988 the first time we see these movements emerge are in 1987 and in 1988 it's more or less robust uh, and this becomes uh, 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 makes uh, more often appearances on the on the public uh, on, in the public space in the public square and people are gathering on, <clears throat> on streets and, uh, and demanding the Soviet government to acknowledge these grievances and do something about that. And one of the biggest political agenda to emerge from it was that a historic injustice was done when Karabakh was given essentially on a platter by Stalin to Azerbaijan and this historic injustice needs to be righted and it's it needs to be righted right here and right now so that's sort of the pre-story of the 1988 movement so that's it kind of created this awareness right of like uh, armenian identity but very quickly you know I, I remember reading black garden a few years ago so correct me if i'm wrong but i think very quickly it turned into clashes right it didn't stay peaceful at all yeah, it, it, and, and this is how it basically happened. Armenians started gathering uh, in, the, <clears throat> in Yerevan, which is Armenia's capital, and which where mu much of Armenian intellectual ferment happens, uh, is, has a very forgiving uh, winter. And so, like this mess demonstrations would not happen, for instance, in my hometown of Gyumri, which is really, really, really cold in the winter. But Armenians in February started <coughs> coming out on the streets uh, in, 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 in Yerevan in support of Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, who had earlier in the year, in February of 1988, had started a signature gathering campaign in Stepanakert. Uh, the capital, demanding right, of, in the uh, capital of capital yeah. of Nagorno-Karabakh, then known Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast, uh, the autonomous region, they had started a signature gathering campaign, sending directly to the center in Moscow, circumventing the proper sort, so to speak, channels that were set in the Soviet Union. Instead of appealing to Baku, they leapfrogged Baku and sent their letters to the Moscow uh, center uh, letting know about their grievances and the discriminations and all the other stuff that I told you about and so in in and the Armenians in Yerevan start coming out on the streets in solidarity with Armenians in Stepanakert and uh, soon uh, the center in Moscow is riled, uh, so is Baku, which sees that this is its territory, its domain, and Armenians are acting in bad faith. And so uh, several, uh, a couple of, maybe hundred probably uh, Azeris uh, from, the, uh, from, uh, uh, from the city of Agdam 
start making their way in a counter-protest to Stepanakert to essentially tell the Armenians to bugger off. Mm. Uh, and the Armenians are not happy with that. Uh, naturally, the temperatures are rising and a small clash breaks out where two Azeris are killed. Now, the investigation post facto would determine that the killed Azeris uh, were killed by Azeri policemen. But such nuances are lost in the heat of the moment, right? Mm. And, and, a radio <coughs> and a radio program broadcasts in Baku that there have been clashes and two Azeris have been killed, implying that the killers were Armenians, which could not be further from the truth. And based on these rumors, uh, and rumors that Armenians have been uh, displacing Azeris from southern Armenia, from the city of Kapan, based on these rumors, mobs uh, made of youth, essentially, uh, attack the Armenian residences in the town of Somgait, which is essentially a suburb of the capital of Baku. It was a working uh, class city, uh, economically depressed, suffering from uh, environmental uh, <coughs> uh, environmental problems. And so these youth descend on, on Armenians and start essentially killing Armenians indiscriminately. According to the uh, official estimates, some 32 Armenians were killed in rather horrific and terrible and brutal manner. Uh, <clears throat> you can read about this. And there were the, the outrages that were committed against Armenians essentially shocked the Soviet Union. As you probably know, the flow of information was tightly, tightly controlled Mm. in the Soviet Union. But how do you hide something horrific as this? So images start making around Armenians escape from Sungai to Baku and from Baku to the uh, to other parts of the Soviet Union to Russia and this story breaks out. But interestingly the Soviet press initially I even remember uh, when the when the clashes happened, you know uh, my, my dad was an avid reader of the Pravda, and we were subscribed to Pravda, Izvestia, and Sovietsky Sport, the sort of flagship Soviet papers. And I remember opening the yeah, newspaper, my father opened the newspaper, waiting something hefty to hear from the Soviet government, from its official mouthpiece, on what had happened to the Armenians in Songaid. And there was exactly... Uh, probably three sentences saying that uh, ethno, uh, ethnic clashes have happened to Sumgait on, on, or na batavom uravnya, I think that was the phrase used, which means uh, on some insignificant matters. Right, and th this was a massacre, right? Yeah, this was a massacre for all intents and purposes. But the Soviet government, in order to minimize and, I guess, to mm -hmm. calm down passions, put on the fourth page, not on, not even on the first page, maybe on the third page, where, mm -hmm. you know, a small, small sliver. I can, I have the uh, screenshot 
from Pravda, I can send it to you, your way, mm -hmm. you can see. And so that was sort of the beginning. And uh, <clears throat> it con continued several days. Finally, the Soviet internal troops get a hold of the situation and stop uh, it from deteriorating. And as you can expect, there were retaliations by the Armenians, uh, though it never rose to the level of the outrage that was committed against the uh, Armenians in 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 Sumgait. But that sort of the spiral started from there, and then, uh, of course, the high point of the entire Armenian massacres would be the. Uh, January 12 and 13 massacres in Baku, January 12 and 13 in 1990, where uh, upwards of 150 Armenians, or upwards of 100 Armenians were killed in, in horrific fashion, thrown off balconies and burned alive and so just awful, awful stuff. Right, and then the war carried, it turned into a full-scale war, right, and that carried on until 1994, was it? Yes, and so... Yeah. What happened then was that the Soviet Union was crumbling and Armenia declared independence in 1990 along with the Baltic states and Ukraine and Georgia. Azerbaijan held back, hoping that if they don't declare independence, the Soviet Union will take its side in any impending conflict with Armenia. And they obviously miscalculated because the Soviet Union had other problems like keeping itself from falling apart. And so what happened is that when the Soviet troops started leaving, they left a ton of uh, uh, equipment that uh, according to the signed uh, documents and treaties would stay for Armenia and Azerbaijan. And so when Armenia and Azerbaijan became independent states. Meanwhile, Nagorno-Karabakh would declare its own independence from Azerbaijan. So it became a tri-party uh, conflict, and it, the conflict that was internal to the, to the Soviet Union would become international. Now you had two sovereign states and one unrecognized but self-declared independent republic uh, go at each other. Armenia supporting, of course, Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan fighting the war on his own with with with, with some support. Uh, Do you think then? Um, so so that kind of all you know, there was a ceasefire essentially in 1994, but it it was never over, right? The war was just simmering for decades. There have been pot shots, and then of course there was the. Uh, was it like six day war in 2016 it's got very brutal very quickly but this is something bigger right this looks like a full-scale conflict turkey is involved azerbaijan is just droning all of the time do you think that this is a continuation of that historical conflict or do you think this is something different now well right now it's you know like with everything uh, of this sort it, it is uh, too early to tell we are in the initial stages either of the restart of the uh, old conflict or this is a new conflict altogether. But to me, I think this is an old conflict in a more modern uh, sort of international idiom. Now the uh, interested parties are um, 
sort of um, itching for a fight, maybe on a larger scale. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, the conflict was frozen since 1994, for lack of a better term. Uh, we entered in a zone of no war, no peace since 1994. Right. But yes, there were pot shots, there were local clashes. I participated in some when I was in the Armenian army in 1996 through 1998 in the Tavush region, which mm -hmm. was the scene of the conflagration in 2016. I know the terrain. I was there. Uh, I mean, in, 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 in July of this year, not in 2016. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a strategically important region so there were all these skirmishes and snipers and uh, dispatched and territories changed and new trenches dug, all that stuff but this is qualitatively and quantitatively uh, conflict of a much 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 larger scale and with probably bigger stakes than ever right why do you think azerbaijan is doing this so a couple of things happen <clears throat> that again i think needs to be properly contextualized when nikol pashinyan came to power uh armenia until nikol pashinyan's coming to power let's put it this way uh had been talking to azerbaijan either as equals under robert kocharyan as the winning you know guy who was talking as equals to Ilham Haliyev's father, Heydar Aliyev. Uh, so Armenia and Azerbaijan were talking as equals, Armenia being the winning party. But with Serge Sarkisyan, sort of the dynamic changed. Uh, um, meanwhile, Azerbaijan was able to make a ton of money based on uh, its oil revenue and, uh, and so on and so forth and acquired some uh, stupendously uh, sophisticated uh, modern weaponry from Turkey and Israel and from Russia, uh, basically itching for a fight with Armenia. And under, under Serge Sarkisyan, Serge Sarkisyan was sort of a more pliant character, uh, politically speaking. Uh, though he was considered Armenia's strongman within Armenia, he never sort of projected power in mm. his dealings with Ilham Aliyev. And Armenia never sort of projected power in its dealings with Azerbaijan. So Armenia's, uh, Armenia doesn't have uh, the wealth that Azerbaijan has. It's, it's obvious. Uh, but <clears throat> Sir Sarkisyan was more of a, I do not want to say a weaker person, but certainly not a person that would essentially uh, hit Azerbaijan's uh, hit back at Azerbaijan the way, let's say, Azerbaijan was dealing with Armenia. For instance, there was an instance when an Armenian helicopter was shot down over Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan a number of years ago, and all Ser Sarkisyan was able to do will get back to you. And there was really no retaliation that was uh, uh, that, that was of the scale, 
right? Armenia never. Right, he, he didn't Armenia really have an answer yeah. for uh, yeah. Azerbaijan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Armenia never shot down, for instance, reciprocally, an Azeri helicopter. Uh, and so <clears throat> Aliyev took it as a sign of, uh, and probably the international mediators, as a sign of Armenia sort of losing ground and uh, and so on and so forth. So Aliyev kept on growing its military, his, his country's military capabilities. So did Sir Sarkisyan, but not to the degree that sort of would uh, allow him to kind of stand up to Aliyev and return a punch that he had taken. So, and, and, and also he was much more politically predictable. He did not have any sort of ha uh, tricks in his hat that he could spring on unsuspecting parties to the conflict or to the mediators. Everybody, he was an open book, everybody could read him. And he was a rather dull and boring book in that regard. Yeah. So along comes, along comes the 2018 Velvet Revolution that overthrows Sir Sarkisyan. And if anybody who is worth his or her salt has followed Armenian politics, knew how, uh, <clears throat> how personality-driven and charisma-driven Nikol Pashinyan was. He was not somebody who was going to back down from a fight. If he was going to be hit in the nose, he would make sure he could come back and, and broke your nose too. He could take a punch and he could return a punch. And that was sort of his shtick throughout his political life and throughout his political existence in, in Armenia. Right. And, and he was like uh, he was like a man of the people, at least seen as that way, right? Whereas previous leaders were kind of not quite. Yeah, he's not from Yerevan. He's from Ijevan, a regional small town. He was not from Karabakh. He never fought in Nagorno-Karabakh. He was not a businessman. He was just a low sort of um, a lowly journalist, a man of the people. He fraternized with people on the streets. He wouldn't mind having a beer with somebody who admired his work or somebody whose work he admired. And so he was really the man of the people and, and a perennial sort of thorn on the side of the Armenian governments in the prior era. You know, his political life essentially started in 2008 when he organized the meetings uh, when uh, Levonter Pedrosian tried to make a political comeback and lost the elections to uh, Serge Sarkisyan in 2008. And so <clears throat> he was known as as a fighter, perhaps uh, not of the scale of Mike Tyson, but he was a fighter nonetheless that could hurt you. Uh, and so when he came to power in 2018, and Armenia is, by all metrics, uh, credible and incredible, doing much better uh, in, in terms of democracy, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and so on and so forth, it's, it, it, it is in much better uh, a position than Azerbaijan say. And when <clears throat> he came to power and he had a mandate from the government, uh, from the uh, people of the uh, people of Armenia, so he felt more sure in his shoes. Whether, wh whereas uh, Serge Sarkisyan wasn't as sure. Yes, he was, uh, he, he had fought in Nagorno-Karabakh, 
but because of the corruption of his government, he was universally derided and, and universal, near universally hated in Armenia. Enter the scene, Nikol Pashinyan, who is, for all intents and purposes, much more charismatic, much more loquacious, much more, when, when you listen to his Armenian speeches, much more articulate than Ser Sarksyan or Robert Kocharyan. He was a man of the, he, he was a cultured man, he had read books a lot, he is cultured, he has written books, he was a journalist, he, you know, that was his trade of words. That's mm. what thrived on. So when he comes to power, and there is a respite between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, on the line uh, of contact, I mean, these potshots still continued, but not to the scale. They dwindled a bit because Pashinyan had started a dialogue of sorts with uh, Ilham Aliyev, who was uh, sort of biding his time, and he was sort of, you know, when you enter the ring to find you want to get a feel of your opponent. And that's what that's what Ilham Aliyev was doing. He was just getting a read of Pashinyan. But as time went on and <clears throat> Pashinyan felt more secure in his position in Armenia as a political leader and as a leader of the country, his position towards uh, uh, compromise in Nagorno-Karabakh hardened, and it hardened not unilaterally, uh, it needs to be said, but because Ilham Aliyev's rhetoric itself had become hardened. He claimed uh, ownership over Yerevan, he said Yerevan belongs to Azerbaijan historically and we are going to liberate. So, as I said, Pashinyan, he takes a punch and he returns one. And so this rhetoric tit for tats went on for some time, and <clears throat> in 2000, and, I mean in, in July of uh, 2020, <clears throat> this sort of heated rhetoric turned into a heated combat when in the region of Tavush, uh, Azeris tried to take over an Armenian outpost, but were repelled. And so that sort of set in motion uh, what we are seeing today, really. This happened, this new wave of violence didn't happen on September 27. It happened in July 12, uh, or July 16, I can't completely remember, when Azeris tried to take over this outpost. Armenians repelled. Azeris ratcheted up and started shelling the positions. Armenians returned a favor, killing a general, a general that was near universally loved in Azerbaijan, a war hero, and <clears throat> a person who donated his uh, Baku apartments to a uh, Karabakh war veteran, and so on and so forth. So that sort of riled up Azerbaijan, riled up mm. Aliyev, who, and for the first time, uh, Azeris poured on the streets in tens of thousands, went to the parliament, took over the parliament building briefly, demanding war against Armenia. Yeah, that was crazy. It wasn't to say no war, as most people do. They were saying, we want a war, right? We, you have to go and kill them. And Aliyev, <clears throat> really, I think, uh, if my read of the situation is correct, he was really, really taken aback by this development because 
Mm. Azerbaijan is a wealthy country, has bought a ton of sophisticated weaponry, and if you read the Azeri papers or watch the Azeri TVs, uh, the constant message is Armenia is about to fall apart, Armenia is economically degrading, Armenia has no legs to stand on, if we want we can take all of Armenia tomorrow, we have all these weapons, and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, you have a general for the first time in the Armenian-Azeri conflict killed by a direct Armenian fire. How do you explain that to the Azeri people, right? And right. and he feared that <clears throat> his position is his throne is being <laughs> is being sh uh, shaken. If he doesn't go to war now, this his inaction will embolden the Azeri opposition, will embolden uh, the discontented youth that you are indecisive, Armenians are killing a general on our land, and we have all this money, we have all this wealth, and Armenia is, you know, this rotting corpse almost and you're not doing anything about it, maybe it is time for you to go. So he was, mm. he, he found himself in a corner that he never imagined he would find himself in. So he was, his hand was sort of forced. Yeah. Uh, and when you have a general killed, and generals aren't killed every day, not even on the, on, on, in intense fighting grounds, that sort of changes your calculus, changes uh, the entire dynamic of the situation. Yeah, um, and in terms of the the fighting right now, I mean, you know, we've all seen the uh, the headlines, we've seen the footage, but uh, maybe give our listeners like what level it's at because this isn't previous Nagorno-Karabakh style fighting. This is airstrikes, drones, um, loads of tanks have been taken out, like more than twenty, I think now. Hundreds of people dead. Like, just give us an idea of how brutal this conflict is right now. Uh, this is a 21st century warfare. This is being translated almost live. I mean, any operation that is successful for either side almost instant instantaneously ends up on YouTube or on Telegram channels or on Twitter or on Facebook. And the intensity level is, uh, to be honest, unprecedented since 1993. The heaviest fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh happened in 1993 when basically the war was decided in 1993 and in 1994 was just the tail end of the war and everything quieted down. So in my estimation, the amount of dead that even officially recognized by Armenia is honestly unprecedented. I, I do not remember any of this sort coming the, from the reports from that era. So this is pretty, pretty heavy and expectedly so because both sides have tremendous amounts of weaponry and capabilities and delivery mechanisms. So, yeah, this is as intense as it gets. Mm. This is the most intense I recall since 1993. Yes, yeah. Um and what are those numbers? You mentioned they're very high. The last time I saw was like 180, and that was maybe two days ago. Um, what are the numbers now? 
Well, Azerbaijan uh, has imposed restrictions. Its military does not give out official numbers of its military deaths. It gives out mm. only civilian deaths and wounded. And I think they have reported 11 civilian deaths and upwards of 150 uh, civilian wounded. Armenian side is much more transparent. The Armenian society is much more open, of course, and the flow of information is not as restricted, though in wartime, uh, this flow of information has been somewhat curtailed, but still there is a ton of independent journalists that can verify or, uh, or, or, these numbers are much, much difficult to hide. So today I was listening to the uh, uh, military's briefing and there were 56 new deaths today for Armenians, which puts the total numbers around 160, 170, I'm not altogether sure. But then Armenians also calculate the Azeri deaths, which they put uh, over 1,200, I think. And it's not even been a week yet, right? The fighting hasn't even been going on a week. Just to give you an idea, the overall war deaths on both sides in, in the conflicts in 1990s, the four-year conflict, was around 20,000, 25,000. So if this scale continues, we're going to see the, that record being probably broken if this doesn't stop soon. Do you think there's any chance that this can be curtailed, like there can be some peace brought, uh, some mediation, or do you think it's too late now? Uh, there are wheels that are turning, but uh, uh, I, I, at the moment, I am usually a realist guy uh, with a flicker of optimism. That's my sort of outlook on life. Mm. But the way i see things unfolding i am not holding much hope and the biggest spoiler uh in my estimation is turkey and uh, turkish president recep tayyip erdogan let's let's talk about turkey yeah because turkey seems to have planned this with azerbaijan in my opinion purely from the fact that you know regime turkish regime state media immediately had uh, their feet on the ground within like 10 minutes of the conflict starting and straight away you know turkey was backing them and what have you i think it's clear that they've helped them do this i mean what role do you see turkey is having right now in this war i mean i don't think i would disclose a secret uh, if i say that uh or make headlines if I say that Turkish advisors are absolutely on the ground in Azerbaijan. Mm. Uh, the Turkey, Turkey sent a contingent of uh, airplanes, fighter jets, F-16s, I think six that went to Azerbaijan in July for wargaming and two of them stayed behind. Four of them returned to, Azer uh, to Turkey. So Turkey has been giving Azerbaijan not just the moral support, uh, tap on the back and uh, prayer as moral supports are usually done but Turkey has I mean on official levels from Erdogan from the foreign minister Mevlüt Çavuşoğlu and from the defense minister Hulusi Akar they have said time and time and again that they will provide Azerbaijan all that is necessary for them to liberate Nagorno-Karabakh quote-unquote and uh, they will do this on the negotiation table, but also militarily. And I believe them. 
when when they tell you that you have to believe that and it's not just more not just you know mere psychological operations to make armenians you know give up without a fight so on and so forth but i mean this fight probably could not have happened uh with the degree of ferocity that we are seeing without turkey's implicit and explicit uh soccer of or, or support of of, of azerbaijan and armenians you know officially are now claiming uh on official level armenians are claiming that turkey is absolutely a party to the conflict in the early days of the conflict armenia accused of armenia accused turkey of using its f-16s to bring down an armenian su-25 uh, ground attack jet in Armenian territory, uh, they accused Turkey of shooting it down, or at the least, uh, uh, the least providing support uh, to Azeri air defense forces. Um, and Turkish uh, drones are circling near Armenian uh, borders, near Yerevan, and also near Gyumri, where the Russian 102nd base is located they're reading the intelligence and collecting intelligence from those two areas and are menacing essentially the armenian borders and there were reports actually that some there have been some ground troop movements near the armenian border i am yet to see further confirmation of this but yeah turkey is absolutely is involved in an unprecedented degree turkey has always rhetorically supported azerbaijan uh has supported it propaganda wise but this is for the first time that we actually see sort of turkey pouring fire that pouring oil on the fire actively it's not yeah. using fire retardants but actually putting oil to the fire making it making it even worse than it was going to be probably it feels emboldened by that mm. they've also uh, there's also evidence that they've been sending these uh, mercenaries from syria into azerbaijan now when i first saw that i was skeptical i thought why would they need to do that what's the point but it certainly now seems to be confirmed at least some of their families back in syria are saying yeah uh, our lads went and fought they died there now, if you look at who these people are, it's very worrying. These are mi militias who went into the Kurdish areas in Afrin and they've been running um, kidnap for money, you know, schemes. They've been, uh, there are women that have been put under sex slavery, uh, looting people's homes. And now they're in Azerbaijan fighting Armenians. Like, it looks bad. You know what I mean? It doesn't look good. Yeah, these are not your upstanding tax-paying citizens. Right, uh, right. Yeah. And um, when the first reports started uh, coming out, I think the first reporter reporting this was a person named Lindsay Snell, who I was told doesn't have uh, the uh, street cred, to, to put it yeah. that way, yeah. of being a reliable newsbreaker or reliable reporter. So I was skeptical myself. And, mm. you know, when you look at these things on the face of it, you sort of have to be. I have a skeptical mind. And so I thought, nah, this is not going to happen. What is here for Azerbaijan, right? And then these reports became much more frequent and much more credible. 
and again, and then reports started coming from credible Kurdish sources. And again, I was skeptical. And actually, I was contacted by a British journalist uh, working for a major, major British news outlet. I haven't been quoted by them, so I would, I, could, I do not feel comfortable giving out the names and uh, calling me, uh, contacting me and asking my opinion and saying, have you seen these reports? You know, your, uh, how, how true these reports can be. And I said, listen, we have, if, if we take a forensic approach to this, we have a lot of circumstantial evidence, but we do not have yet, uh, you know, forensic evidence of these things happening. Rumors are just that, probably they're just rumors. And I would be skeptical uh, of any report uh, that purports to show that there are Syrians on the way to Nagorno-Karabakh. Number one, because of, you know, the religious differences are always talked about. These are Sunnis, Azeris are by and large Shia. How can a Sunni reconcile in his mind and his heart fighting for a cause that is dear to the heart of the Shias of Azerbaijan and so on and so forth. So there were these dynamics involved as well. But it just didn't make sense sort of even from the propaganda size. If the West or if anybody got a hold of this news, I mean, this would put Azerbaijan squarely in the wrong sort of uh, framework in in the current conversation on the Middle East and, and holy warriors and all these brutalities that are happening. So propaganda-wise, it did not make sense. But then when I started seeing reports in The Guardian, Reuters, Agence France Presse, I think also, and then, uh, and then the French intelligence and the Russian intelligence, like, goodness, this is really happening. So this is an uncharted territory uh, right now, but which is not to say that this didn't happen before. Uh, if, if you know anything about the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh in 1993, there were about 2,000 Afghan Mujahideen that traveled mm. and fought in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, it, it was a very uh, disturbing development, but uh, they were they were called the uh, uh, Afghanskie Gastraliore uh, in Russian, which means the Afghan itinerant performers, because they came, so to speak for jihad and for money, but they neither got a proper jihad and neither got properly paid. So some of them ended up going either to Chechnya or further west to Bosnia. And so not that this is not un un unprecedented, the involvement of foreign mercenaries in the, uh, uh, the war theater in Nagorno-Karabakh, but it is unprecedented in the way that how it's been organized by a NATO ally, by, by a major player in the region, by Turkey, who has essentially not become just a conduit for these mercenaries to travel, but are actively recruited by the, uh, by the Turkish uh, intelligence and the military to be transported for the ex express purpose of fighting Armenians for a set amount of some a month. Yeah, and NATO is, uh, you know, largely silent on it. I mean, when when every, you know, it's it's complete truth that Turkey was paying for them to 
fight in Afrin and commit war crimes and just nothing, you know, <laughs> nothing from NATO whatsoever. It's it's a very strange situation, like the modern day kind of the way that these kind of brutal countries just get away with things now is quite worrying. Um, you just spoke there about kind of religion briefly. I mean, do you think that that will come into it uh, if this carries on? I've certainly seen a lot of Christian militant kind of pages saying we need to help the Armenians. And obviously in the uh, the, the 20, 2016 war, I, if I remember right, there was a Yazidi had his head cut off by an Aziri. Um, two old people were shot, their ears were cut off, like very kind of sectarian level violence. Do you know what I mean? Do you think that still has a possibility of coming back or, or is that something in the past? Yeah, that is actually the area of my research. And I have a book that I'm working on, the uh, religious dimensions of the Armenian-Azeri conflict. Um, I've been working on Lord knows since when, and I keep adding material. Um, but it is a it is a distinct possibility. And why is it a possibility? Is that in the times of war, uh, you know, my I, I dissertation under a sociologist of religion named Peter Berger, a fascinating uh, person to be around. And he had a very, very neat concept describing uh, something like this. In times of crisis, uh, he calls these times of crisis uh, the, um, uh, how he called it, uh, the ecstasy of marginal, the ecstasy of marginal situations. Mm. Uh, and in times of crisis, uh, people either become religious or if they are religious, their religiosity can jump sky high. Because when you find yourself in the midst of carnage, that on the face of it has, doesn't make any sense. I mean, who, does, who wants to go and, 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 you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and makes a rational choice. I'm going to pick up a gun and go and fight and so on and so forth. So in times of crisis, these things are that can happen, and you need as many as as many allies as you can get. So you throw a wide net on who you can sort of recruit to your cause, and one of the easiest ways to recruit anybody to your cause is to present a cause that makes sense to the outsider as well, that appeals to his sensibilities. And what but religion can provide sort of this system of meaning to draw in somebody who would be able to lay his or her life for a cause that is bigger than him. And so, it, in, in, and I'm speaking here as a sociologist. Um, so this, this, these things can happen. And our, in, in, the, in the 1990s war, this was also absolutely the case. It never developed, the, the conflict never developed sort of an autonomous, self-propellant religious dynamic. Mm. Religion was instrumentalized. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the conflict, you cannot say the conflict is religious between Christians and Muslims because at the deep root of it, it really is not. But when you need to motivate your people Right, they use it. Yeah, you then. use an arsenal of 
various tactics and messaging and so on and so forth. And religion that has been probably the earliest, one of the earliest sort of social glue in, 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 in human history, apart from kinship, the family ties and so on and so forth. Nothing binds together under the same sort of ideological canopy as religion, right? That's why my advisor, Peter Berger, called it the sacred canopy. It is a canopy mm. that provides sort of a system of meaning within which your existence makes sense, that you're dying not for getting ahead in life economically, though that calculation may be in the back of your mind. But when you face an incoming bullet or when you face an incoming arrow or you face an incoming rocket, your death needs to make sense. And so these resources can be utilized and have been utilized throughout history. This is not, I'm not inventing or reinventing the wheel. And these resources and these arsenals have always stored of, uh, you know, standing by at the ready, ready to be employed. And some of us are more vulnerable to these things than uh, others. But uh, it, it, it provides sort of a, a meaningful, uh, uh, a meaningful existence in these in these life and death situations. Yeah. So I guess it could happen at any moment, really. If things get bad, it could be utilized, right? Um, what is Israel's role in this? I'm reading that they've been selling weapons to um, Azerbaijan. Um, and then certainly they managed to expose some of those weapons in that stupid, crazy war pop video they did recently. Um, how, how serious is that, the, the, you know, Israel selling the big weapons to Azerbaijan? Well, it, it is extremely serious because it puts uh, uh, in the hands of uh, somebody like Aliyev uh, weapons that have tremendous uh, kill rate and I and a couple of days ago I put on on, uh, on Twitter a very cheeky post saying imagine you are drunk on power your name is Ilham Aliyev and your designated driver is Recep Erdogan <laughs> so these these weapons they are you know tremendously uh, uh, effective in the battlefield mm. And from the videos that I have seen, some of the most important or some of the most damage that has been done to uh, Armenian uh, equipment has been done by Israeli and Turkish uh, Turkish drones. Uh, they're, they're precision weapons, they're highly sophisticated, they're different to tackle with, their uh, profile is small, so they can fly undetected uh, even with the best of uh, air defense systems they can you know they be they can be detected uh, rather uh, with, with extreme difficulty so they're effective on the battlefield and the biggest headaches that the armenian and us and nagorno-karabakh militaries have faced have come from israeli drones and so Armenia has has not had 
cordial, or rather they have had cordial relations, but the relation has been always sort of on a professional level with Israel, which I think is uh, 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 was not good. And Armenia tried to change that relations by establishing uh, uh, embassy in Israel. They opened two weeks ago or so. And yesterday, Armenia recalled its ambassador from Israel in protest for Israel's continuing suppliance of weapons to Azerbaijan, as even we are speaking. I think there are like a couple of flights every day from Israel that bring this sort of weapons. Um, Azerbaijan has a, today, actually, they, for the first time, may have used a LoRa, an Israeli long-range missile to take out a bridge that connects Armenia with Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah, I saw that footage. Um, and what about Russia? Russia's in a weird space here, right? They've got a base in Armenia, but they also sell discounted weapons to Azerbaijan. They seem quite quiet at the moment, don't you think? Yeah, the, the Russia's posture has been uh, to Armenians in Armenia, at least. Russia's posture has been mind-boggling. Uh, in, in terms of, you know, we have this formal relations with Russia on a bilateral level. We have a defense pact with Russia, but we are also part of CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, initiated by Russia, that Armenia is a member of and Azerbaijan is not. And Russia has been, uh, Russia's posture has been sort of an uh, aloof imperial power that is trying to arbitrate between two recalcitrant teenagers. Uh, mm. Russia does have does have uh, a military base in Armenia. It does sell Azerbaijan, not discounted, full-priced weapons. It sells oh, to Armenia okay. or gives to Armenia, provides Armenia weapons discounted. Uh, 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 or, or rather, okay. with, with, with internal pricing. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. Russia would sell Armenia missiles the same price it would sell itself. Um, so, Russia has supplied most of the weaponry to both sides, actually, and Azerbaijan's acquisition of Israeli weapons is actually the recent, uh, not a recent phenomenon, but the jump in Israeli weapon acquisition has been only within the last five or so years. So, and Russia is, uh, so there is a couple of sort of schools of thought on, on Russia's posture right now. One is Russia does not have uh, good relations with, uh, rather Vladimir Putin, let's let's speak of not Russia and Armenia, but mm. of, of, of Putin and probably Armenia, because these politics can become personal quickly. Mm. And when Nikol Pashinyan came to power, uh, the people that he dislodged from power were Russia loyalists, essentially. Serge mm -hmm. Robert Kocharyan, who's reputed to be uh, uh, very close friends with, uh, uh, with Vladimir Putin, who is being prosecuted, and the former head of the CSTO, General Khachaturian, who is also being prosecuted for corruption and so on and so forth. So, in some, some school of thought says that for Putin this is personal, he's biding his time, and, see, and he's hoping that things will get tremendously bad for Armenia and Armenia will turn to its imperial imperial protector to the north and invite 
the Tsar to come in with the cavalry and take your business, where, whereupon Armenians will pledge eternal fealty to Russia. So that's sort of one, one way of seeing it. Um, the second way of seeing it is that Russia is basically caught by surprise. They didn't expect uh, such a forceful Azeri assault and such a robust Turkish support. And Turkey is absolutely muddying Russia's uh, sort of near abroad geostrategic calculations and Russia was caught by surprise. And now they are sort of trying to put together and pull together a plan where, where whereby they will be able to marginalize the Turkish role and return uh, the Southern Caucasus, which looks like to be slipping from under Russia's control back under its domain. So there's this couple of things that are happening, but Russia's response has been, um, for lack of a better word, uh, sort of mind-boggling to a lot of the observers because, <laughs> as I say, Vladimir Putin's mind is a 10-volume mystery novel, and we are just on volume one. Absolutely. Where can people find you if they want to follow your work, see you on Twitter and all of that? Tell us your uh, your links. Yeah, I mostly hang out on Twitter, and I am at Artyom Tonoyan. My Twitter handle is... I, uh, I tweet on this A-R-T-Y-O-N. A-R-T-Y-O-N. Yep. Yeah. And then T-O-N-O-Y-A-N, yeah. Yes, yes. Excellent. Okay, man. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. That was very insightful. You too. Stay All safe. Right. So that was Dr. Atyom speaking about the clashes and the horrific situation currently happening between Armenia and Azerbaijan, mostly played out in the contested region of Karabakh or Artsakh, but also now spilling out into the rest of the country really horrific situation um i definitely suggest reading a book called black garden if you want to get up to speed a little bit more with the kind of history of um nagorno-karabakh also check out episode five me and uh, aram shabanian did an episode completely solely about nagorno-karabakh about two years ago and also i think episode 82 uh recently about the uh basically saying that this was going to happen a simmering war between armenia and azerbaijan and unfortunately it's happened and it's absolutely horrific very very deadly so yeah definitely check that out black garden and listen to our other episodes um yeah please do consider supporting popular front if you want to see this all keep moving go to patreon.com popular front there's premium episodes bonus content all sorts going on there that you know it's not a lot of money and it helps us keep going it helps us keep moving so yeah, patreon.com slash popular front. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Tell them popular front sent you, you get a discount hopefully. Uh, it's also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. Uh, one in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grind Core house the episode is also sponsored by propagandopolis an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda that is propagandopolis p-r-o-p-a-g-a 
D-O-P-O-L-I-S. Get prints at propagandopolis.com and enter the code POPULARFRONT10 to get 10% off. The episode is also sponsored by Black Triangle, an independent company selling self-defense tools. Check them out at blktriangle.com. Like I said, please consider supporting us on Patreon or go to popularfront.co slash support to uh, help us keep moving there. We are 100% independent, no corporate bullshit, no one trying to fuck with us, no one telling us, you know, oh, you should be taking the UN's line, you should be taking NATO's line. No, we report on conflict as it is uh, and we stay that way independently. Patreon.com slash popularfront or popularfront.co slash support. Follow us on social medias. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Popular Front Twitter is at Popular Front CO. The Instagram is at Popular.Front. We've got 100,000 followers now somehow. Fucking God knows how. Thank you all so much for supporting us. Really appreciate that. Uh, go to YouTube.com slash Popular Front. Subscribe because we have something extremely uh, special and exclusive coming very soon. It's going to cause a storm, I think, um, and it's unique. Only Popular Front can do it. You'll see it. I don't want to say nothing about it, but, you know, it's going to come within the next two months. YouTube.com slash Popular Front. Check us out. Uh, for everything, all the links compiled, uh, you can go to popularfront.co, the website. You'll see it there. Thank you very much to the uh, higher tier Patreons. They are Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Bastian Gamello Ritmeyer, Ian Froese, James Cully, Michael Akakan, Ethan Reyes, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, Alex Northrop, Ed Courthard, Johnny LaFlair, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Newski, Mike Barone, Scott Opton, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, George Arani, D.R., Trey Nance, Charlie, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, Mink, uh, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Christina Rovetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al-Rashid, Maxwell Burke, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Sarushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, Skatoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarek, Patrick Bronte, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Govanek, Cubal, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did and Defiance, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Moritz Zumwalt, K. Hardy Roberts and Joanne Stocker. Thank you all so much. Without your help, uh, this would plummet and burn. So thank you very much. Please do consider supporting us. Patreon.com slash Popular Front. There is so much coming. Trust me. Get on it. Patreon.com slash Popular Front. Have a look. Support us. Uh, keep it moving. Uh, intro uh, music. The intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black, son of old. Check his music out at samblackpf.com. Sorry if the audio is all fucked, like, um, I know I sound fucked, I'm ill and I'm tired, um, but yeah, more coming soon. <laughs>